So we're doing, I'm doing a series on influential Christians. And um, I was actually planning on talking about C.S. Lewis today. But this week, I read an incredible book written by an extraordinary man. Now, Sam had recommended the book to me a few months ago, and I reserved it through my local library borrow box app. And finally, last Wednesday, it became available. And it was perfect timing because the issues addressed in this book are exactly what is being talked about right now in the U.S. and around the world. The title of the book is Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. And the picture on the right is of the real Brian Stevenson. The book cover on the left shows the movie adaptation, which is streaming for free the month of June uh, because Warner Brothers wants to help people learn about systematic racism. So if you want to join us, um, we're going to be watching this tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. Um, through our Zoom link. And so if you want to join us um, through the same Zoom link that we have um, for sharing after the sermon, it'll be the same Zoom link and password. Um, tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, um, we're going to be watching Just Mercy. Now, the book is, is actually a memoir of all the true stories of Brian, um, of his work. Um, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about his life first. He was born on November 14, 1959, and he grew up in Delaware, which is a small state near Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Now, from an early age, Stevenson dealt with segregation and its legacy. For example, when he was a child... Uh, and he wouldn't get vaccinated, they would go to the vaccination clinic and all the black kids would have to line up in the back door and wait for hours while the white kids all got vaccinated first. They got to enter through the front door. And so he grew up with systematic racism being a part of his life. He went on to study at Harvard Law School and during a class on race and poverty litigation, he had an internship um, and so he worked for the Stephen Bright Southern Center for Human Rights, an organization that represents death row inmates throughout the South. And that internship sealed his calling. He knew this is what I want to do with my life. And so after graduating from Harvard in 1985, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and worked full-time in defending inmates who were unjustly receiving the death penalty in Alabama. He went on to found uh, the nonprofit organization called Equal Justice Initiative, and basically this organization works tirelessly um, year after year working against execution deadlines um, of inmates who are waiting for their execution, but a lot of them um, who are innocent, some of them were guilty of small nonviolent crimes, but are being um, executed and, and given a harsh penalty because of systematic racism and because of the socioeconomic discrimination that a lot of them face. Time after time, he has discovered men, women, and children incarcerated and condemned to be executed for crimes that honestly should have been um, manslaughter or, uh, you know, fraudulent checks, things that should not have led to death penalty, or even sometimes children who should have been uh, tried in a juvenile court but instead were sentenced in adult prison. The book and the movie highlight the case of Walter McMillan, an African-American who was accused of raping and murdering a young white girl. And he was sentenced to die, even though he was completely innocent. On the day and time of the murder, he was hosting a fish fry at his house. And over a dozen people were witnesses of him being at his house all day. Um, and despite the overwhelming evidence that showed that he was completely innocent, um, the completely white jury and judge... Um, and, and the appeals court, they condemned this man to die. And so the book and the movie it, um, it highlights what happens to his story. So I hope you can join us tomorrow night as we, as we watch the movie. 
Um, but there's other stories in the book that that uh, that he highlights as well. And I don't want to spoil the book too much, and so I'm just going to give you a few kind of hints and tastes. There's a little boy that um, named Charlie who really, you know, grabbed my heart. He's 14 years old, and he was playing a, a game, a card game with his mom when his mom's partner came home drunk. And as was his habit, was beating his mom. But this time it went too far, and um, she was lying on the ground, bleeding, unconscious. And Charlie thought he, she had died because he tried to resuscitate her, and he couldn't. And um, while he was going to call 911, he, he saw a gun, and in his fear and in his trauma, he went and shot the man. Um, and then he called the police, and the police came, arrested Charlie, 14 years old, tried him as an adult, and sent him to a adult prison. And when Brian Stevenson first visits Charlie, you know, Charlie's like this little slender boy in this big prison adult clothes. And Charlie sits there hunching the chair across from him. And Brian is trying to ask, are you okay? You know, um, it turned out that his mom, even though she, he thought she was dead, actually was was alive, critical condition, but alive. So he was just saying she's in the hospital, you know. Um, and he's trying to get the boy to talk. What happened? Can you talk to me? You know, how are you going? And the little boy just sat there in complete silence, staring at the wall. And Brian, you know, tries to get him to talk about anything, you know, food, cars. He's like trying to get him to talk about something. And he keeps asking me, can you just talk to me? Please say something. And the little boy sits there staring at the wall. Finally, Brian comes next to him and he puts his arm around the little boy. And then Charlie starts sobbing. And he sobs and he sobs. And he finally says, there are men here who hurt me every night. Three men came the first night, many more the second night. They hurt me so much. They make me do things. And he sobbed for over an hour. And when it was time for Brian to leave, um, because there's limits to how long he can be there, and Brian has to go, and, and Charlie is clinging onto Brian's jacket, please don't leave me here, please don't leave me here. Brian worked tirelessly to get Charlie's case moved to a juvenile court where he was ultimately sent to a juvenile detention facility. And Charlie had always been a good student, and so he was able to get his general equivalency degree while in detention center, where he served out his time. Not all the stories have happy endings, but for the many inmates that Brian Stevenson visited and worked for, no matter what the outcome, they were always so grateful for this man who cared whether they lived or died, because for so many years and for so much of their lives, no one seemed to care. Brian Stevenson was a light, a hope, a friend, a promise that there can be justice and mercy in this world. He is, to me, a true Christian. I don't know him personally, but reading his book, looking at his life, he lives out the principles of what Christ shared. Thanks to Brian Stevenson, in Miller v. Alabama, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a landmark decision that mandatory sentences of life without parole for children 17 and under were unconstitutional. Their decision has affected statutes in 29 states out of 50. That's amazing. In 2016, the Supreme Court ruled in Montgomery v. Louisiana that this decision had to be applied retroactively, potentially affecting the sentences of 2,300 people nationwide who have been sentenced to life while still children. And another court case uh, that Brian Stevenson successfully won uh, protected condemned prisoners who suffer from dementia. So Stevenson is, and his staff at the Equal Justice Initiative have personally won uh, reversals and relief and release for over 135 wrongly convicted prisoners on death row. 
and hundreds of others who are wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced. And so he continues to work and speak on behalf of the individuals who are hidden and forgotten by society, but who are never forgotten by God. For God has always cared about the marginalized. He has always cared about the poor. He has always cared about the minority. In the 8th century BC, when God's people, his own people, were oppressing the poor, right? They were, they, were, they were oppressing the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans by systematically making it difficult for them to thrive, imposing heavy taxes on them, and then heavy penalties if they couldn't pay back their loans on time, taking away their opportunities and their freedom. And, and God was so angry over this. And so this is what he says in Amos chapter 5. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And he goes on to say, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are stench to me, right? Those are fighting words. God is saying, I'm so angry that you think you can come to me and worship and, and sing and, and give me these religious offerings while, meanwhile, you are mistreating the poor and you are making it systematically impossible for them to thrive. He says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, it's not just about not doing wrong. It's about intentionally, proactively doing what is good, seeking justice, rebuking the oppressor, defending and pleading for those without power and voice. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now and let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Right? He's saying, let's go to court together. Let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So his cry echoes throughout history, pleading for us. It's not just about not doing evil, right? It's about proactively doing good, right? Seeking justice, defending, advocating, giving voice. Here's what it says in Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And that's where that, that title that Brian Stevenson have, has of just mercy comes from. There is a justice that is merciful, right? That is compassionate. And there is a mercy that is just. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You see, at the end of the day, what will matter is how much we loved. Not our, not how much we love our friends and family because they love us back, and there are benefits and bonds. What will matter at the end of the day is how much we loved the strangers, how much we loved those in the darkness, how much we loved our enemies, how much we loved the unworthy. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you are who you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord." When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, "Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me." Then he will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. You see, Jesus makes it clear that we are held accountable for how we care for the least of these. We are responsible for the kind of community that we create, and and the measure for that kind of community is by looking at the least of these, by looking at the marginalized. What is the baseline of those who live in our society? What is the the not the standard of living, but what is the baseline of of where we're at? In his book, Brian Stevenson articulates this well. He says, "Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality, cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated." An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we all condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy. We all need justice, and perhaps. We all need some measure of unmerited grace. Grace is treating people with respect, no matter who they are or what they've done. A just mercy that treats people as human beings, equal to us and worthy of dignity, even while arresting them. On May twenty fifth, George Floyd was killed by a police officer who kept his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes. In 46 seconds, despite Floyd pleading, "Please, I can't breathe." This has been the rally cry of protesters across the U.S. and in other nations. I think today in Melbourne, there's there might be one, and and all these protesters have stood up to say they're tired of the systematic racism, the police brutality, and the fear and the injustice that black people have to live with every day. And having lived in the U.S. for most of my life. I've witnessed some of the pain and injustice, and the fear that African Americans have had to endure.、Um, you know, other minority groups have have experienced prejudice and discrimination as well, but nowhere to the scale that African Americans have in in the U.S. 
because the degradation of slavery has left a lasting impact in society that continue to discriminate against them in a significant way. And I know that here in Australia, Aboriginal um, people, individuals, have experienced similar cruelty and injustice. For example, in 2015, David Dungy uh, Jr., a 26-year-old man from Kepsi, Dungati man, died after being restrained face down. And an inquest in 2019 was shown video footage of him being restrained by up to five officers as he yelled, I can't breathe. Very similar to what uh, just happened in the U.S. as well. How many more black lives have to die before we are willing to make lasting changes in our culture and in our attitudes? Because the truth is, prejudice exists in every heart. It's important to acknowledge that. Even if we think we treat everyone the same, the reality is that we all have implicit bias because we all grew up in a culture, in a society where there are subconscious and um, verbal and, and, and visual uh, discrimination that kind of seep into our minds and our lives. I want you to take a screenshot of this uh, slide. On the top, there's a link to an online test that you can take that help you realize your subconscious bias. Okay? I took this test, and I thought I treated everyone the same. I thought I, I looked at everyone the same, but when I took this test, it showed that I have subconscious implicit bias. And there's a spectrum of racism, right? There's, there's, the, there's the kind of, quote, innocent or ignorant kind that just kind of assumes things, you know? Oh, you're... You're Asian. I cannot tell you how many times people assume that I pastor an Asian church because I'm Asian. And I have to say, no, I pastor an Aussie church that is representative of the multi-ethnic diversity that Melbourne is. And they look at me as if there's no way that I can minister to people that are not of my same skin color, right? That there's that kind of racism. But there's a whole scale, right? There's a whole scale. Um, and I want you to later on, take a screenshot of this and later on have a look, you know, and, and the truth is we fall on this scale um, at various times in our lives. And it's important to acknowledge that we have this um, implicit bias. It's important to acknowledge that other people's biases and our biases can actually cause extraordinary harm for the well-being and the freedom of others. It's important to acknowledge that when we do nothing, right, even if we think we're not doing anything evil, that when we actually don't actively defend them and when we don't actively change and bring about reform in society, that we are contributing by our lack of action to a system, a culture of racism, where inequalities that are rooted within the system continue to exclude and oppress a minority group. Just ask the families of George Floyd and David Dungy, and they will tell you systematic racism can kill. So what can we do? First, we have to stop defending and arguing and acknowledge that we have not done enough, that we have failed to create a safe and just society for all, that we need to do better, that we too are in need of forgiveness, mercy, and healing. And I personally want to, want to apologize for um, my implicit bias and the times when I have contributed to um, the systematic racism and discrimination. There's a powerful moment in the book, um, in Just Mercy, when Brian Stevenson gets completely discouraged. Can you imagine, day in and day out, seeing just how unfair the system is and doing his best to save people, but sometimes he couldn't. 
There is a moment when he, despite his best efforts, is so discouraged because a man is being executed and there's nothing he can do. Judge hadn't stopped it. The man is being executed. And Brian is sitting in his office just ugh, discouraged, wanting to quit. And then he realizes something. He says, my years of struggling against inequality, abuse of power, poverty, oppression, and injustice have finally revealed something to me about myself. Being close to suffering, death, executions, and cruel punishments didn't just illuminate the brokenness of others. In a moment of anguish and heartbreak, it also exposed my own brokenness. You can't effectively fight abuse of power, poverty, inequality, illness, oppression, or injustice and not be broken by it. We are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. Sometimes we're fractured by the choices we make. Sometimes we're shattered by things we would never would have chosen for ourselves. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. We have a choice. We can embrace our humanness, which means embracing our broken natures and the compassion that remains our best hope for healing. Or we can deny our brokenness, forswear compassion, and as a result, deny our own humanity. I frequently had difficult conversations with clients who are struggling and despairing over their situations, over the things they'd done or had been done to them that had led them to painful moments. Whenever things got really bad and they were questioning the value of their lives, I would remind them that each of us is more than the worst things we've ever done. I told them that if someone tells a lie, that person is not just a liar. If you take something that doesn't belong to you, you are not just a thief. Even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. I told myself that evening what I've been telling my clients for years. I am more than broken. In fact, there is a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and a desire for mercy, and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things that you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. You see, this is how, this is how salvation works. This, this is what Christianity is all about. And, and Brian Stevenson, he gets it. He gets that, that we are all broken, right? We are all broken by sin. The sins of others and our own sinfulness. And in our, in our common brokenness, we experience God's mercy. And we learn to see each other with, no, with new eyes. No longer as other. No longer as worse than or better than, right? Instead, we just connect through our common brokenness and our common need for grace. And we become brothers and sisters on the same side of mercy. We become stone catchers. Brian Stevenson, when he speaks at churches, he shares the story of John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery who was dragged before Jesus and all the accusers are, 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 are picking up large stones ready to stone her to death. And they say, Jesus, she was clearly caught in adultery. She has clearly committed a crime. And the law says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus is silent for a while. And they wait for him. And Jesus is writing something on the ground. And he finally stands up and he says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And the accusers 
realize God convicts them. Perhaps Jesus was writing their sins on the ground. They realize they are also broken, right? They are just as guilty, if not more, than this woman. And so one by one, they leave. And the woman is left alone with Jesus. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? And she looks around. She, she was cowering, you know, half naked, thinking she's about to die. She's about to be executed. But she realizes all her accusers are gone. And it's just Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He shows her a just mercy, right? And, 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 and Brian Stevenson shares this story when he goes around and preaches. And he says, we have to be stone catchers. We have to be the ones that defend the, the ones who are condemned, right? To be willing to take the stones. And, and perhaps it may bruise us in the process, but we have to be stone catchers. He says, but today our self-righteousness, our fear, and our anger have caused even the Christians to hurl stones at the people who fall down, even when we know we should forgive or show compassion. I told the congregation that we can't simply watch that happen. I told them we have to be stone catchers. This week, Roy and I have been discussing, reading, thinking about what can we do, right? Praying. What can we do to be stone catchers? You know, we can we can write to policymakers and leaders. We can we can vote. We can raise awareness. We can ask for reform. We can stand up and speak up. But something that we really wrestled with is sometimes we don't really know what to say. It's not easy to know what to say. But once again, we're coming to realize that it's not so much what we say. Sometimes it's about listening and learning. And it's it's in that place where we want to help that we actually receive mercy ourselves. The first time Brian Stevenson met uh, someone on death row, he was just a law student, right? He was just an intern. And they sent him to, to tell a man named Henry um, that they don't know when his execution date is going to be. They don't know when they're going to be able to give him a, re, uh, a new trial, if ever. But all they could tell him was, you're not going to be executed this year. And they told Brian, hey, go tell him that. And so here's Brian, you know, going to a prison for the first time. Oh, what, what am I going to say to this person? I have no good news to share. I have no information. I have no power. And so he meets this man. And he kind of says, oh, I'm here to tell you that you won't be killed. This, I mean, uh, you won't be executed. Um, I mean, you will, but not this year. And he's bumbling with his words and he's, he feels horrible. But Henry is just grateful that he's there. And they start talking. It turns out they have the same age. They have so much in common. They talk about, you know, things they like, their lives. And before they know it, three hours have gone by. And the guard is furious that he's been there so long. And the guard's you know, abruptly ends the visit, handcuffs the man, and he's like, it's time to, to leave. And as as the guard is taking Henry away, Brian he starts mumbling over and over again, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I have no power. I'm just a law student. I don't know how to help you. I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Henry says, don't worry, Brian. It's okay. Just come visit me again. It's okay. Don't worry, Brian. And as the guard is shoving Henry out of the room, and Brian is sitting there, struggling to say something appropriate, wondering what can I say to reassure this man? How how do I say thank you for not treating me like the idiot that I feel like? And then while he's sitting there struggling with, with what do I say, what do I do? Henry looks at Brian 
and he's being, you know, dragged away by the guard. And then all of a sudden, Henry kind of plants his feet so the guard can't drag him. And he tilts his head back and he closes his eyes and he opens his mouth and he sings in a deep baritone. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And as, as the guard, you know, recovers, because he was a bit startled as well, it recovers and, and starts pushing him out. And Henry's got shackles on his feet, so he's kind of stumbling and waddling. But he continues to, to sing, and, and, and Brian can hear his voice down the hallway. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane that I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Brian later reflected, I sat down completely stunned. Henry's voice was filled with desire. I experienced his song as a precious gift. I'd come into the prison with such anxiety and fear about his willingness to tolerate my inadequacy. I didn't expect him to be compassionate or generous. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row. It gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. In that moment, Henry altered something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopefulness. What incredible two Christian men who gave each other the gift of vulnerability, dignity, and grace. Even though one was a convict and the other a bumbling intern, the two did not judge each other, but they treated each other as equals and as friends. What will it take for us to be vulnerable with each other? To put down our barriers and our masks and our layers and, and just... Be willing to connect through our common brokenness, through our common need for redemption. To confess that we're not as innocent as we think, that we need mercy and forgiveness, but that through that process that we actually have so much in common, that we have so much healing to do together. For hundreds of years, Christian slave owners went to church and they held up their Bibles and they came home and whipped the slaves and, and abused them. And the slaves experienced this hypocrisy and they knew that Christianity is not just about posing in front of a church and holding up a Bible. Christianity is not just about believing in God. It's not just about knowing all the doctrines. And it's not just about, um, you know, the kind of people you belong with. Christianity is about how you treat others, how you portray that Christ lives in you. One of the slaves in the 1750s wrote this hymn, and we don't know their name, but it became a very well-known song. And the slaves in Virginia, as they were laboring in the fields, would sing this song. They would sing, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. And they, and they sang this because they knew that true Christianity means being honest in your heart, right? Not just on the outside, but in your heart, recognizing your brokenness, recognizing your need for mercy, and wanting to be genuine like Jesus. I've asked Roy to sing this song. And so you can feel free to sing along if you feel so inclined in the safety of your home. As a prayer of confession. That we have fallen so short of what God has called us to be as individuals and as a community. But also as a prayer of faith. That we believe that, that if we genuinely acknowledge our brokenness. If we genuinely admit our shortcomings, and then come together
to 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 bring about change, that we can bring about a shift in our culture, that we can bring about reform in, in our society. And so I'm going to invite Roy to come over and um, and sing this song. And it is my prayer that as you listen and as you sing along, that from our hearts we would want to be like Jesus. Join me for a closing prayer. Father God, forgive us for when we have failed to love all the people well. Forgive us for contributing to a culture that has not been a safe place for all. Forgive us for not speaking up when we should have or speaking too much when we should have listened. Forgive us for being preoccupied with our own priorities of our own social and financial securities that we forgot and neglected those who needed justice, mercy, and compassion. Help us, Father God, to want to be a Christian in our hearts, to want to be like Jesus in our hearts so that we can bring about change for our communities. Please give us wisdom and courage and focus to do what we can to impact this world and to make this place a community where we can truly shine the love of Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen.